Welcome to the Daily Texans Politics and Pints, the most listened to podcast in history. Period. I'm Forum Editor Jordan Shenhark. And I'm Daily Texan Editor-in-Chief Alexander Chase. Welcome back. Um, hope you all had a pleasant and relaxing and not existentially terrifying winter break. Uh, we're recording our first show of the semester shortly after Inauguration Day. Um, and more importantly, shortly after the marches across the country and the world that drew about 10 times as many people as Inauguration Day. Sad. Period. Yeah, this is an interesting time to uh, try to comment on things because, uh, you know, the first few days of the Trump presidency are unfolding uh, perhaps a, a faster pace than some pessimists would have predicted, but about, about as fast as... Uh, you know, any other presidency, except it seems a few more things are on the line. Um, you know, Trump officially said he was pulling out of the TPP, which we all knew was going to happen. But a slew of other uh, actions he took have uh, taken a few observers by surprise. Yeah, the, the first few days of the administration have definitely set some worrying precedents from the fact that the president uh, is immediately in violations of the emoluments clause of the Constitution, by not divesting or by not terminating his contract in the Willard Hotel, which is a government, or by not terminating his contract for the Trump International Hotel, which is inside of a federal building, uh, the contract sp- specifically states that no elected official can hold the lease. Um, by his unusual um, maneuver of giving a speech at the CIA, uh, in which he talked about possibly reinvading Iraq and taking oil. So there, there are all kinds of things going on, um, worrying things to keep an eye on. But for, for the first show coming back here, um, we wanted to focus on two kind of specific themes, one of which being the how we can channel organizing energy into political action, how the women's marches can take a page out of the Tea Party playbook and continue that motivation going forward. And also we want to talk about some rules of engagement for journalists, uh, especially given some of the uh, obvious mistruths that the White House press office has disseminated in the past couple of days, what journalists can do to better inoculate themselves and the public from uh, administrative pressure. Yeah, I mean, I feel like this is a difficult time if you're uh, not planning on doing anything. And uh, I would hope that both those who are, you know, both those who took to the streets in Austin and elsewhere and those in our positions are willing to get going. Um, those protect those protests in particular though were uh something impressive to see i i know many people who were uh at protests in uh 2013 in reaction to uh hb2 and uh they were themselves taken aback by the scale of all of this um but obviously scale isn't enough by itself right the the austin protest was abnormally large for um for the city, as were most of the protests around the rest of the country. Los Angeles had something like 750,000 people, which alone made it bigger than the famous uh, tax day protests in 2009, which kind of inaugurated the Tea Party as a major political force. And the, the, on that day, there are estimates that there were about 300 to 400,000 Tea Party protesters around the country. The, the Women's March marches on January 21st, in contrast, uh, were estimated to have over 3 million people nationwide, over 4 million worldwide. That which makes them exponentially larger than than the Tea Party. And how can do you think this move is it sustainable? Can the movement be as effective as the Tea Party? Well, I, I think that 
an interesting uh, thing that we uh, dug up when we were researching our editorial on this that we wrote the other day is that this is uh, the largest worldwide protest since the protests against the Iraq War. Um, and the reason that comparison doesn't exactly hold up is because uh, the number of people who were uh, attending rallies in favor of the Iraq War um, were much larger in scale themselves. Um, so what highlights this is a uh, unique situation. You know, waters that we uh, have to be really careful not to wander into and then say stupid things once we're there. There was a huge number of people who opposed the Iraq, Iraq War and who have opposed all sorts of other measures uh, throughout history, recent and, uh, you know, not so recent. You, you mentioned HB2 earlier, which for our out-of-state listeners, the few that we may have, um, <laughs> I mean, the millions that we may have, uh, <laughs> was um, the controversial abortion bill that uh, was proposed in the Texas state legislature and eventually passed over the objections of uh, Democratic lawmakers, most notably State Senator Wendy Davis, who filibustered and went viral for her filibuster and joined us in the same very same room that we're currently podcasting in yes no I, I think what what has made some of those marches unsuccessful is that you know members of occupy wall street the protesters outside of uh, hb2 the iraq war protesters were all fighting a fight that there was no clear path of victory for no matter how large their numbers were and you know that the reasons there are different um all of the power was already consolidated and available for Texas lawmakers in 2013. Occupy protesters never really seemed like they had a definitive set of uh, goals that could be achieved, though definitely some complaints that are still valid. Um, and of course, there were just more people in favor of the Iraq war um, than there were opposed to it, um, even if that didn't necessarily mean that it was for the right reasons. So I think that what protesters need to be wary of is that they need to, one, leverage you know their numbers in ways that actually lead to something. Um, you know, this is a, the this is a great number of people. How many of them are going to consistently show up uh, to vote in their primaries or to volunteer in meaningful ways for primary candidates is important. But I mean, these other protests also mark you know movements of some sort the tea party shifted the democratic or shifted the republican primary and what it meant um occupy wall street protesters didn't really change who ran for things there's an interesting distinction um because for a long time commentators suggested that occupy wall street and its kind of offshoot occupy movements nationwide would become the, the left-wing equivalent of the Tea Party. That never seemed to happen. Occupy didn't really factor into local races. Local races. It didn't primary, uh, or didn't launch primary challenges to Democratic incumbents the way that the Tea Party did with Republicans. And it didn't maintain that kind of grassroots momentum towards affecting legislative action in the same way that the Tea Party did. And the Tea Party was always, always able to punch above its weight in terms of its size. There weren't really that many protesters relative to the number of Republican representatives who were terrified that they would lose their seat to a more radical upstart challenger unless they themselves adopted some more radical positions. Um, so what what went wrong with, with Occupy, and how can uh, organizers now avoid kind of reaching that, the sim a similar fate? 
Well, I think it's a bit of a chicken and egg sort of thing. Um, if you ask someone today what the Tea Party stood for and what policy goals they wanted and how they went about it, they'll probably be able to tell you some version of uh, people who wanted to cut the deficit and spending and wanted to lower taxes um, got really angry and elected people to do that. We should also mention that not all of them really wanted to do that. Uh, yeah. A lot of Tea Party activists were protesting for completely different reasons, and the movement itself never really laid out a coherent set of policy goals. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that you know perception is reality to an extent here, even when it shouldn't be. Um, if you ask someone today what the uh, the policy goals of the Occupy movement are, I'm pretty sure most people, for better or worse, would say something to the effect of they want to break up the big banks or something like that, probably because they heard Bernie Sanders' message over the summer. We tend to rewrite these movements retroactively in our minds based on what actually happened. Um, so I think that we got to be really careful not to try to turn these examples into what we want them to be. Um, that said, I think that, you know, what what really matters here is that I don't think the Occupy movement scared people insofar as the Wall Street kind of funds both parties in different ways. Um, Tea Party uh, activists were very, very clear in who they saw as uh, being capable of helping them achieve their goals and who they thought was in the way. I mean, there's definitely undertones of the Obama presidency being the problem there. Um, and the Women's March is definitely about more than just Trump. You know, the platform that they've set out is very civil liberties based, um, to borrow terms that I don't think necessarily they're going to be the first to use, but probably should be, you know, the idea there is they want protections and they want, um, they want things that they believe are going to save people's lives in different respects with regard to healthcare, um, you know, I feel like it's it's a there. Are, there's a cohesive message about, you know, different people need help, different people need protections, and there is some sort of moral obligation to provide them. And they see those protections as slipping or going to be gone in the next hundred days. Which is interesting because that's a pretty clear break from uh, the Occupy Wall Street kind of mold where there wasn't really a coherently laid out set of policy goals. The uh, defining characteristic of Occupy Wall Street was that uh, rather than using megaphones, random people would get up to speak and have the crowd amplify their voice by repeating them. Uh, uh, it was designed to kind of empower the individual rather than uh, advocate for a cohesive ideology. But the Tea Party did the same thing. Uh, in, a way, in a sense, the Tea Party didn't have the same kind of coherent policy goals that it seems like the Women's March has had. And yet it still managed to attain electoral success and now stands at the precipice of, uh, of power in all of America's institutions, the executive branch, legislative, judicial. Yeah, yeah. And I think that what needs to be leveraged there is uh, at least putting some fear in people in both parties. You know, I, I feel like there's... Uh, at least some criticism that has to be laid at the feet of the Democratic Party for not laying out a consistent message for what they stood for in this election in the past years, uh, especially at the local level. Um, there's been a lot of focus on national stuff uh, for them, on, on national issues uh, for them. 
to the point that I don't think that their message and their goals have always consistently uh, made it to uh, the majority of congressional districts. Gerrymandering is also a problem. I don't think we can. Uh, I don't think we can uh, talk about the two separately. Um, but I do think that you know governors' mansions in blue states are going red because I, I don't think that the party has acted on the promise of, you know, the Obama coalition. And, you know, by being the big tent, I don't think that they always were in a position where they were attractive to all people. I think that a march like this can kind of draw some lines in terms of, no, you cannot be part of this if you believe these sorts of things. Um, Which, you know, after eight years of being in power is something that they're going to need. Yeah, I think it's definitely a lot easier to mobilize an opposition uh, than it is mm-hmm. to mobilize mm-hmm. a coalition in support of something. Uh, there were a number of diverse perspectives th- at the Women's March uh, from different ideologies, um, most notably abortion. There were a number of pro-life marchers who, um, despite disagreeing with the official platform of the movement, um, thought it important to volunteer them uh, their, their activism efforts on behalf of fighting against Donald Trump. And... So as long as the Democrats are in the opposition, then they uh, they have a pretty good opportunity to mobilize um, some of this ideological diversity to to take office. And then mm-hmm. when and if that happens, they may wind up with the same problems that Republicans have right now and that they can't actually really agree on what they want to do. Yeah, I, I see this as being the sort of thing where that could be avoided to an extent because it seems pretty clear about what they want. I mean, the big fight right now is going to be about health care and then women's health. And, uh, you know, it, I mean, we, live like, we live in a country where we can afford to spend money on those things, in truth. Um, I, I do wonder, though, to what extent, um, you know, the next four years could uh, mean that, you know, healthcare for all becomes less a possibility because uh, some mistakes we make in terms of financial planning as a country. But as we stand today, those seem to be some fairly uniting sorts of goals. And I, for better or worse, think that people are going to uh, agree with them more and more as time goes on. Everything else that follows, and I will say that there's, you know, a lot of discussion that they made their platform has made, the protesters have made about um, racial justice uh, that I feel could fall by the wayside if things you know, aren't done properly. But um, it's hard to predict that. Yeah, and it's hard to see what kind of uh, concrete eff- effect the protests can really have until uh, campaigning starts again for elections in tw- the 2018 midterm elections. Um, the Tea Party got act started becoming active three months after Obama took office and it took them until 2010 to really make much of a difference in, in that time frame. Um, mm-hmm. The Affordable Care Act passed. Um, Barack Obama achieved a, a number of his signature domestic legislative proposals mm-hmm. uh, while he had control of both houses of Congress. So um, as encouraging as it was to see so many people opposed to the kind of deeply abnormal presidency that just started um there could be some some dark days ahead yeah i I think the best hope for them is that uh a man who is very obsessed with ratings uh and we'll get to spicer here in a second um is when he tries to fall asleep in the white house um 
or in Trump Town or, or in the Winter White House, Mar-a-Lago. Oh, man. Uh, troubled by the fact that there are millions more people who are willing to stand outside against him than in support of him at this point. Um, his rally attendance was always a, a point of pleasure of his. And now that that's no longer something that he can brag about, I, I do think that will bother him. That said, the degree to which he and those around him can create their own reality is troubling. Yeah, I mean, he, he really had two kind of approaches by which to respond to his relatively sparse Inauguration Day crowd, which were to realize why people are so opposed to him and respond to that, or lie about it and build a kind of delusional alternative reality filled with alternative facts in which it was actually the the most attended inauguration in history. So, um, strangely enough, credit a lot of credit goes to CNN and their coverage of, of the Sean Spicer debacle in that they refused to air the press conference live and instead reported on it after the fact so that reporters could give a more accurate picture of what uh, had actually happened than what Sean, Sp- than what Sean Spicer gave. But um, it's, a number of journalists have expressed concern that they won't be able to trust official statements coming from the White House given how easily uh, disprovable Spicer's statement was. So as, as journalists here, um, it's easy to, <laughs> sort of, uh, sort of journalists. Um, it's easy to see why that's troubling. But uh, what kind of advice do you think that we should offer up to our millions and millions of listeners for um, for how journalists can respond to this kind of thing in the future? Well, I feel like there are questions the public has. Um, I think a journalist is, uh, to some extent, supposed to ask those. I, I question whether or not a ABC should have been sticking a camera in the face of Richard Spencer. Um, I think we should also be questioning whether or not protesters should be sticking a fist in the face of Richard Spencer, but that's a funner discussion for another time. Captain America says yes. (sighs) Yes. Um, At Trump's only press conference of this uh, year and his only in months, he was able to turn away the questions of certain Um, reporters because of their outlet that they represented. Um, I was deeply disappointed that uh, another reporter from another outlet did not immediately ask the same question. I I think that's the sort of thing that, uh, you know, if if the press is going to be referred to as one cohesive group, um, that's not always fair. But there are moments where they could leverage that expectation positively. Um, You know, if if CNN and BuzzFeed, or if CNN is going to be culpable for BuzzFeed's actions, and New York Times is going to be culpable for CNN's, then I believe the reporters who do attend these uh, press conferences do need to have a sense of uh, responsibility toward re-asking questions that are unfairly unanswered. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, uh, during uh, at the height of the Watergate scandal, the uh, when Nixon White House was refusing to take questions from the Washington Post or from ABC, NBC, um, CBS reporters and New York Times reporters would pick up the slack and ask the same questions and make sure that the press kind of presented itself as a cohesive unit. Um, I feel like in the early days of the Trump administration, some of the press's more uh, unfortunate habits over the past eight years are kind of coming back to, to haunt them, one of them being the... Um, 
balkanization of media outlets and uh, differences in reporting styles between um, major major outlets. Um, as we've seen with kind of the, the hyper-competitive media landscape that's emerged in recent years with the decline of print revenues, um, rise of online media, and um, some fringier niche outlets taking attention away from more mainstream publications, uh, there's been a kind of reliance on access journalism, uh, the idea of having sources and reporters develop a close relationship so that um, the publication can get scoops faster. And that's really not going to work very well in the Trump White House uh, if you want to actually report information that's going to be accurate. Um, the, the other worrying trend is how uninquisitive a lot of outlets have been in questioning the Obama administration. Uh, which is often referred to as the only scandal-free or uh, one of the only scandal-free administrations in history. And um, it's hard to tell whether how much of that has to do with the uh, impeccably clean record of the Obama administration. It definitely was the, one of the most transparent administrations in history. But people said the same thing about, about the Nixon White House before all of those scandals broke. And those scandals broke because reporters looked into them. Um, we don't really know to what extent reporters were, were digging deep into the, uh, the recesses of the Obama White House to, to see what they could dig up. And that's a, a skill that's going to have to be revived now that there's so much distrust, earned d distrust of um, official sources of information. Yeah, and, and to be a little more positive than that, I think that you know outside of um, those pre press conferences, uh, reporters do have to be effective at some, you know, being empathetic towards those they're reporting on. And to give credit to a lot of these sorts of outlets, you know, having reporters mixed into crowds safely, I will admit, you know, at a safe distance is a, is a thing you have to be able to do. You have to have that Dallas Morning News reporter on Facebook Live um, being there and being part almost of the protest, you know, so that the people who are there can understand that they aren't just holed up in their offices writing lies, but really there to try to see what's happening. Um, that, that didn't seem to help reporters very much during Trump rallies where they were confined to the press pen and oh. yelled at during a two minutes of hate type spectacle. Yeah, yeah, I, I, th I agree. I, I mean, I want there to be a world in which uh, people who are not, you know, able to take a side for or against the press, um, you know, and I, I think that I'm concerned either way about the idea that, you know, people would see a, you know, a reporter uh, with their phone out recording and jump in front of them uh, and jump in front of their source and disrupt them and, you know, try to, you know, surround them and keep them from doing their job, uh, whether or not they're supporting Trump or if they're, you know, part of an anti-fascist protest. Either way, that should be bothersome. Um and I think that reporters are going to be able to, are going to have to be uh, be willing to put themselves in some situations where they're going to feel a bit uncomfortable. But I feel like at some point, you know, you're going to be doing the right thing there. Um, and I applaud those who are doing those already. And a good friend of mine uh, um, was uh, doing you know was was, li was going live on Facebook um, in DC. Uh, our former managing editor Jordan Rudner. And uh, she mentioned an instance in which, which one of the photographers uh, kind of laughably compared what was going on the day of Inauguration Day um, to Tahrir Square. Um, 
this is not that dangerous. You know, the Trump protest, Trump rally attendees are angry, but it's this is nothing compared to what a lot of these journalists have seen uh, covering the Iraq and Afghanistan wars and protests in the Middle East. So to bring some of that same backbone back, if you will. Right. And it's, and it's going to be important to avoid that kind of sensationalism yeah. uh, in, in reporting and uh, make sure that stories are as clear as possible, as transparent as possible, and contain as little spin on the part of the reporter as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a certain segment of the population, it seems on both the right and the left, that will never trust uh, what they consider a mainstream media outlet. Uh, some of that is because the mainstream media generally reports the truth, and some of that is because the mainstream media might be a little too willing to trust official sources, but um, both of those assumptions are going to be put to the test in the next couple of years, uh, and it'll be really important to the um, to the future of the republic and uh, the quality of information that's available to the public uh, to to make sure that uh, the media is doing its job as as well as possible yeah i mean i, f- I feel like i feel like the only bias that should exist would be should be that in favor of you know the public if that makes sense uh, you know we sit here kind of able to uh, espouse our opinions to a, a degree um you know we wrote our editorial about um organizing and the need for that i mean i pretty firmly agree firmly believe that uh i want a world in which both parties are able to offer all americans something good um I think that both of them have slipped up to some degree. Um, and through uh, effective reporting and community organizing, I, I hope that the Democratic Party is able to, um, ex- you know, pounce on the moments where a Republican Party is not willing to necessarily serve its people. And I hope that if they get themselves in a good situation in four years, they're able to offer something good. The Republican Party learns something from these four years and come uh, 2024, 2028, it's not a uh, it's not a uh, luster of two evils um, race in the eyes of America. I agree, and I also hope the reverse is true, and that the media will try to hold uh, the Democratic Party accountable wherever mm-hmm. it's in power, oh, yeah. uh, without devolving into the kind of false equivalencies uh, that kind of hamstrung coverage of the 2016 election, where Hillary Clinton was treated not oftentimes as a candidate just as bad as Donald Trump, which were now seeing as ev- and most Trump's many Trump supporters are even seeing as evidently not the case. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. a it's a tough line to walk, but uh, there are, there are a few publications that have been doing it well so far, particularly the Washington Post, uh, the Atlantic, BuzzFeed News has been. Um, <laughs> They've been showered with both uh, praise and criticism. all right that's a good as good a time as any to wrap things up here um i don't think we have a jill stein moment this week i don't know if jill stein has a jill stein moment this week um you know if anyone has seen her i would like them to uh contact us immediately where is jill stein Thank you for joining us. Uh, we'll be back next week where we'll be talking about something uh, whose seriousness we will not know until the day of. This podcast was produced by The Daily Texan and hosted by Alexander Chase and Jordan Shenhar. And the music was by Randy Wachtler. Be sure to check back next week for our next episode. And for more news, go to dailytexanonline.com.